you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And that relationship forms part of our story, our money story. The question is, are you writing your money story memoir? Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Hello, welcome back. This was a fun episode. Before we get into the actual episode, I want to say thank you to you. June was actually the highest downloads on the podcast to date. So that's pretty cool. That means more people are hearing our amazing guest and hearing people speak about our minds, our money, and what matters most. When I first started the podcast, I didn't really want to fixate or focus on the downloads. And I I still don't want to, but it's always nice to see that people are listening and enjoying the content. Also, if you know someone who may enjoy this podcast please share this episode or any other episode you think they would enjoy. And lastly, if you yourself have been enjoying the podcast and our guest, please head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. So on to our guest, Jessica Morehouse is a wealth of knowledge. I have been following her and her podcast, More Money, since around 2016. She has a variety of great guests on the show. Jessica is an expert in money, an award-winning personal finance blogger, and, as I said, the host of her own podcast, More Money. During our conversation, we really dive into Jessica's story, her money story. It was a fascinating conversation as Jessica really opened up and shared her money story with us and the lessons she learned and the lessons she's still learning in her story, her money story. I feel like one of the best ways for us, the listeners, to become more curious about our own money stories is through hearing other people talk about their stories, their money stories. And for that, Jessica, I'm grateful that you came on the show. Jessica is a wonderful person. You can tell through this interview and our conversation. So be sure to check her course out online called Wealth Building Blueprint for Canadians. Also, check out her podcast. It's really good. Now on to my conversation with Jessica Morehouse. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Today, my guest is Jessica Morehouse. Who is Jessica Morehouse? If you have not heard, Jessica is a money expert here in Canada. She's an accredited financial counselor of Canada, a speaker, award-winning personal finance blogger, and host of the popular More Money podcast. Having graduated from Simon Fraser University in 2009, with a degree in film, as a way to learn more about her personal finance and teach others, Jessica took a left turn and launched her first personal finance blog in December of 2011. She then launched the More Money podcast in 2015, which now has almost 2 million downloads. So a lot of people have been listening, Jessica. Yeah. Since then, she's been the go-to millennial expert here in Canada, having been quoted in media Numerous times, in addition to being a regular guest on CTV News, Mind the Gap panel since 2018, she also gives presentations throughout North America to share her expertise and down-to-earth financial advice and teaches students how to build wealth by investing through her online course, Wealth Building Blueprint for Canadians. In her free time, Jessica loves to travel, bake, and read memoirs. When you're allowed to travel. (laughs) Yeah, when we're allowed to travel, which maybe soon. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into your story. We were just kind of chatting before we recorded. And on our podcast, we've been talking a lot about stories and the power of stories that they have on cultures for passing down learnings from generation to generation, but also ourselves as we're story making machines. And we're always telling ourselves a story about whichever situations in front of us are the meaning of our life. And a lot of our podcast has been around that intersection or the story between our minds or money and what matters most. So I thought it'd be great to explore your story. Mm -hmm. So my first question is around you, your story, but let's go back to a chapter in your life way long ago. You were going into film school. I believe it was in Vancouver. Yeah, that's right. What made you go into film school? I think that'd be 10, 12 years ago. Gosh, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was a while ago. I think it was like 11 years ago now or something like that or 12 years ago. Well, it really was just, you know, when you're in high school, you're trying to figure out what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Everyone's asking you, you know, are you going to go to university? What are you going to study? And, you know, there wasn't any one subject that I absolutely loved. And gosh, who knows what my uh, life would have been if there was like an accounting class or, you know, a money management class or something like that. There, there wasn't anything like that. And so I did take a, a film, uh, you know, kind of production course in high school. It was very basic. And this is going back to like, what, 2002, 2003. So some of the first like pieces of equipment we used, we had VHS cameras, which for sure you can't find. I mean, man, they'd actually probably <laughs> go for a pretty penny because they're like antiques now. It was the coolest thing to be able to tell a story visually. And I always loved writing it and storytelling, which makes sense for what I do now. But it was like the only thing that, you know, I took in high school that I'm like, wow, this is so exciting. I absolutely love film. Uh, maybe this is something that I can do. And my dad, you know, is an artist and he he worked for the news at the time. And he thought this was the coolest thing. He always wished he'd pursued that, but he didn't. And so um, I, you know, enrolled in SFU's film program and actually didn't get in my first year. I applied and I, I got rejected because they only, I mean, maybe things have changed since um, I was there because it was, you know, over a decade ago. But in order to get into this program, it was actually pretty exclusive. They only allowed 30 students in the program oh, wow. per year. And then after two years, they would kick some of the students out. Basically, they, they wouldn't <laughs> allow everybody in. So you really had to be on your A-game and work really hard. It was very competitive because a lot of success stories came out of that school. Luckily, I you know applied the second year. I got in. You know, I absolutely loved it. There are certain things that I'm still not, you know, I'm not good at lighting or cinematography. Some of those aspects, the technical kind of stuff, not good at it. But I loved editing and writing and it was honestly looking back such a joy to have that experience. It was kind of like summer camp for kids or, or like adults really, because yeah. we got to just explore all of our creativities and there's no wrong answers. It was just wonderful. But in 2009, when I was in my last semester, I remember kind of thinking, oh, how do I get a job after school? I never actually <laughs> thought about that. And our professors, you know, bless their hearts. All they talked about was, well, you know, have you thought about doing a master's? I'm like, well, that's mm. not an answer. That's not a job. <laughs> and it was, and that this was the beginning or this, you know, we were in the full swing of the recession, which I had no clue about at the time. I was pretty oblivious. And so that was kind of my big reality check was, wow, I actually don't know if I'm employable. So I did get a, a contract job at the Vancouver Film Festival once I graduated, but it was four months and then it ended and then worked some odd jobs during the year and then was just trying to apply for anything. I'm just like, I, I don't think I could work in film and, and film production. I don't like being outside in the cold and the rain. And even if you have a film degree, you have to start right at the bottom. And that's just not what I signed up for. I didn't really, you know, think about the, I guess, the future <laughs> of what to do after your film degree. And so I, I kind of just, you know, did something totally different. I wanted to be like in an office, something kind of that had a more linear trajectory where it's like, okay, mm. you work your way up kind of like that corporate ladder. And so that's what I did. I, I worked for about seven or eight years in, you know, various roles in sales and marketing for, you know, I worked for a number of media companies, newspapers. Um, my last corporate job, I was there for a few years, was more in a digital marketing role for a big law firm on Bay Street. So I did a bunch of, you know, random stuff tr thinking that, okay, I think maybe marketing is like my career path. This is what I should be pursuing. It seemed like the adult kind of traditional thing to do. But on the side, I had this other passion that I actually never really took seriously until... I don't know, five, six years ago, <laughs> because it just seemed like, oh, no, that's my hobby. That's the thing I do on the side, you know, having a personal finance blog, reading personal finance books, eventually adding on a podcast. I just always thought, oh, I'll just always have that on the side, but that's not real. You know, that's not something I, I take seriously until one day, you know, I started seeing other people that kind of started at the same time as me with their own blogs and whatnot. And they started actually building these really incredible businesses or pursue, you know, really taking it seriously. I'm like, well, if they can do it, maybe this is something that I can try myself. I, I never really had that much confidence in myself to be like on the news or on TV or, or do public speaking. I just never thought that's something I could do because that was never part of the game plan that I had in my, mm. you know, my mind. And then I kind of came to a point with my last job where I was unhappy. I was going to, to leave. I wasn't really sure, should I quit and find just another job or should I quit and do something kind of radical? And also this was when I was turning 30. So, you know, you have kind of that life crisis <laughs> at 30. Like, what am I doing with my life? And so I, I kind of took the big leap of faith and quit my job to try to pursue this kind of thing I always just had on the side as my full-time thing. And I've been doing it for four and a half years. I recently incorporated my business. So things are going okay. But it really was, when I tell people my background is a very weird zigzaggy way to where I got here, it really is because I never had the plan to be where I am right now. <laughs> this was never the plan. <laughs> Wow. 
so much interesting thing in that story. And I think the overall lesson is it's hard to plan, especially as I don't know how old you were at that time, say 19, 20, 21, to plan our lives. And when you say, you said a couple of things that who knows what my life would have been back when you went in school, you got rejected, you want to explore creativity, you were felt unemployable. You didn't really think about the future, nonlinear. I think you're telling the story of so many individuals in Canada. Oh, yeah. There's that system, that, that script that we prescribe to. And I think stories like yours of people who took all of that information, because you talked about maybe the film school people saying, go get a master's. But I think you got a master's in life where you like took all of your background and applied it to this leap of faith at 30 years old. And very like kind of organically, because it wasn't intentional. I never thought, oh, maybe I can use my film degree to start like a YouTube channel or to do video content. That never once crossed my mind. And so when it kind of happened after, I'm like, oh, right, I do have these skills. Well, that's handy. (laughs) Wow, yeah. There's a saying that we were climbing the mountain without a top and we're always aspiring and never arriving. And, you know, that really, your story really makes me think of that. At 30 years old, when you decided to take that leap, what stories were going through your head Because I know there's a lot of people who have experienced the first part of your story and they're just really wanting to make that leap. And, you know, the inner critic starts talking here. You're not good enough. No, I still have that critic in my mind all the time. Don't eat that never goes away. Yeah. Do you mind touching on that? Because I think that's a part where it's so natural for everybody. And sometimes when we hear other stories, that part doesn't come out. And then we tell ourselves listening, be like, well, what's wrong with me? Why do I have an inner critic? So what does your inner critic say? <laughs> oh gosh, the meanest things. Yeah. <laughs> My therapist says to be nicer to Jessica. So that's, that's just, I feel like if you're going to, you know, what I've kind of shared sounds a lot like you, then we definitely have some of the same uh, shared experiences and same thoughts and probably same neuroses. But definitely pretty much everything I've pursued, I always had this voice in the back of my head saying, you know, kind of what could happen wrong. You could fail, how embarrassing, or you can waste a bunch of money, waste a bunch of time. I mean, even starting the blog, you know, it wasn't that much money, really. I think maybe 20 bucks a year you spend on hosting or whatever, um, but you're spending all of your time. And so I was in my 20s. Most people are, you know, going out with friends during the week and just like just living their best life, doing what you're supposed to do in your 20s, right? And for me, I always kind of felt like a little bit of FOMO before FOMO was a thing, the little bit of fear of missing out. Even though I did, you know, have a social life and stuff, I still had to say no sometimes. I'm like, oh no, I have some work to do or I have to write a blog post for tomorrow and stuff like that. Looking back, I really feel like I did do what I should have done in my 20s. Like I don't actually have any regrets because what I didn't realize was I was building something from nothing into something that, you know, will hopefully be my lifelong career, which is really cool. And there's also a, a book that I read, I think actually after, yeah, like I think I was 31 when I read it. And I'm like, oh, I wish I read this in my 20s. I think it was called The, the Defining decade, which I highly recommend if you're in your 20s to read it, is about basically what to do in your 20s or, or how you should actually utilize those really defining years of your life. It's not just about, you know, party and, and FOMO for 10 years, because, you know, that's a long time to like, <laughs> just do whatever and then figure it out at 30. You want to slowly start to to figure out what you should be doing with your life and putting those building blocks together in your 20s. So when you are at 30, like I was, I already had something built and I actually didn't realize it, which made it so much easier for me to leave my job because it's not like I was starting from scratch. I'm like, I already have this thing. Hmm, Maybe I could just, you know, take that leave of faith. But going back to the idea of everything I've started, the blog, you know, my podcast, especially, I always had this inner critic that was saying, what could go wrong? You could fail, how embarrassing, or, you know, no one's going to listen, no one's going to read all these kinds of things. But you always, you kind of come to this in my mind, the visual is like you're at a crossroads and it's like, so you can keep on your current path and do what you're doing now. Is that really working out for you? No, that's why you're at this crossroads. Or you can just push past that inner critic, just push that person away and just like kind of embrace that feeling of like anxiety and fear of failure and just do it anyway. And that's pretty much like what I think I've done throughout, you know, really since I, you know, applied to film school and got rejected and tried again. I I could have very been like, okay, it's not for me. I didn't get in. So maybe I should do something else. I, you know, pursued it again and it worked out and it was such a wonderful experience. So one of the best life lessons I've personally learned is listen to that critic and then push it away because it's, it'll always be there. There's always going to be some sort of kind of negative power in your life and then do it anyway. 
Because even if you do fail, and I have had lots of failures, you'll always learn something from it, whether it's, you know, don't do that, or you know what, maybe you should do that, but just in a different way. You didn't quite get the formula right. You sound very curious and open to learning. I wasn't always, believe me. (laughs) I was like the most rigid, you know, when you kind of mentioned we got that, you know, a playbook or or, or I forget the term you use, but yeah, script. Like I, I kind of thought of it as like the life checklist, you know, this is what you're supposed to do to be a successful adult. You're supposed to go to university, get a degree, get a good job, climb the corporate ladder, find a partner, get married, have kids, buy a house, get a car, go on one trip a year. Like that's the life checklist of what society tells us is success or happiness. And so whenever you deviate from that, which is totally natural, because how boring would life be if everyone just did that script? Whenever you deviate from it, you feel like I'm not doing it right. Or is this going to lead me to failure or something that's not so good because I'm deviating from that script? But every time I've deviated from that script, it's been like the best thing I've ever done. What's also difficult, not only do you have that internal critic, but you also have, you know, your external critics. You've got your family and your friends that are just trying to look out for you, but they're also like really concerned. Like, are you sure? Like, what if, like when I told my family and friends, like, yeah, I quit my job and I'm just going to do, I'm going to do my business full time. They're like, really? Like my mom just could not understand. We don't have any self-employed or entrepreneur people in my family. Everyone's an employee and they have been forever (laughs) pretty much. And so for me to do something so different, they couldn't fathom it. They're just like, oh my gosh, I hope you're okay. You know, don't burn any bridges at your last place just in case you need to use them as a reference, like all of these things. And so this is like the hardest thing. I think one helpful factor was my husband's been self-employed since I've known him. And so I had that as a representation of, no, you can't be self-employed and enjoy your job. He loves what he does. And yes, it's not easy. You have to, you know, do a bunch of other roles yourself. Like you have to be your own accountant and all that kind of stuff, but it can be wonderful too. And so, you know, again, like I kind of mentioned, it's, it's really like recognizing and, you know, listening to those critics, but then just doing whatever the heck you want (laughs) because it's your life. (laughs) Wow. I really like that. Every time I've deviated from that script, it's been the best thing ever. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, again, there has been failures, but still, I, don't, I look back on those failures as like, I'm glad I went through that. And, you know, I think that's an important term you just used through that is that it really sounds like when that inner critic pops up and if it's anything like mine, it's frequently, it's like you said, listening to it. And I think that's important because I know people who want to take that leap like you did at 30 years old feel like, what's wrong with me? I have this inner critic or they'll be like, oh, it's coming up avoidance. You know, I'll just avoid this inner critic by working harder. And, you know, when we have this inner critic inside of us going crazy and we're outside looking like, hey, things are going well, you know, it might not be so aligned and it will show up at some point. Well, one thing I do sometimes, it's you can either just like take a moment and think about it or actually write it down, is like literally put, you know, those words that are in your mind down. Like, so, you know, writing it sometimes is so much better to get clarity. It's like, what is your inner critic saying? And you'll write them down and you'll be like, these are the actually the most ridiculous things. You know, some of these potential negative consequences of pursuing this opportunity, you'll read what you wrote down. And you're like, that crazy worst case scenario is so unlikely to happen. Or you can write it down and be like, that could happen. If that did, what would I do about it? And then you can kind of have a, a plan B or something like that. But I think if you just kind of let it live in your mind full time, then it is going to be, you're going to be kind of locked in a cage and you're never going to want to do anything different than what you're currently comfortable with. And part of me too was, I think working in so many, you know, super corporate environments, especially my last job, it was the most corporate environment I've ever experienced, which was a bit like, okay, yeah, not for me. I met so many people who worked for this uh, company that had been there for years. And part of the reason they stayed was fear of the unknown. They didn't want to look for another job because what if it was worse, even though they weren't necessarily happy there. And so they were basically stuck. And I looked at that and I'm like, I don't want to be stuck. We only have one life to live. We have limited time on this earth. Why would you want to waste any time on something that doesn't make you feel good about yourself? You don't feel valued. You're not pursuing something that that makes you happy. Life is too short to just like be comfortable. Like it's actually also, that's the other thing I learned is the pursuit of being comfortable is not something you should pursue. It should always be growth. And with growth, it's always about being constantly uncomfortable. Sometimes there's comfort and that's nice. But in general, you need to embrace the idea of being uncomfortable. Right. Would you say you're, you find comfort in knowing that you've created More Money Podcast, that you've created this lifestyle that lets you live the way you want to live and work on the things you want to work on? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a couple of things that I've done. And I think a big reason why I pursued personal finance as my kind of career path specifically is 
the idea of comfort to me is financial security. I love learning about this stuff, but also what makes me feel okay is that I have my money all organized. I've got a good system. I'm you know growing my wealth through investing. I've got an emergency, like all those things. So whenever I kind of do my little monthly money meeting with my husband and we take an account of how are things going, we're both self-employed. Things could kind of look chaotic if we hadn't had this kind of you know system we created. I feel okay. The thing that I absolutely love about working for myself is I get to be my own boss and set my own rules. I think a lot of people don't realize some of the benefits of being self-employed. I mean, well, maybe they do, but I think there's there's also a reality check too. It's like, I work all the time, but I also absolutely love what I do. So it doesn't feel like work. Like the fact that I kind of wake up whenever I want, like, honestly, I'll be honest, I got up at 10 a.m. today because I also, you know, was up a little bit later last night, but I, I could do that. Whereas in a normal job, you can't do that, right? I think you're up late reading crazy emails from people from Edmonton. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I did because I think I replied back to you and it was probably a very late hour. It was like nine <laughs> o'clock over here. So I was up, I was just on my phone. So I have that, like, that was one of the things I've always dreamed of is like, I would love to not get woken up by an alarm clock because that's my whole life. I'd love to be able to just wake up whenever I want to, but also be able to set my own hours and do what I want. Like the fact that I can like, oh, I need to get some groceries. If it's three o'clock in the afternoon, I can leave my house and get some groceries. So I really love the flexibility and freedom that you get. But of course there's give and take. I do sometimes work weekends or work long hours or, you know, like my birthday was Friday. I worked on my birthday, you know? So like things like that, you know, but overall, I think it's the best decision I could have ever made. Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned like, well, we've been talking about this script or this narrative that a lot of us fall into and a lot of us want to get out and you stepped out, I think, which is a great role model for many people. If we've rewind like way before even film school, there's a lot of research on like social learning in terms of we watch our parents and we learn a lot just from watching their feelings, their emotions, how they handle conversations and especially around money. When you were a child, what do you think you learned or what do you feel like you learned about money from your parents and what impact has that had? It's had a huge impact. It's a big reason to why I think I was always kind of naturally interested in money. And so, you know, from a young age, so my mom was, she's always been like the money manager in our family. My dad for a while um, was kind of the sole provider. And then she got a job as we got, you know, I have two sisters and as we got a little bit older and she started working, but she's always been kind of that money manager and made all the decisions. Thank goodness for her because bless my dad, I love him to bits, but he does not have the same interest in personal finance as my mom does. Also just seeing their dynamic, like she is the saver, he is the spender. And so I saw a lot of, you know, their conversations about money and what we could do and couldn't do. And, you know, we came from kind of a, I'd say, you know, growing up, we're kind of lower middle class and we kind of became more middle class, but there's a lot of stuff we couldn't do. Like I never, we never got an allowance because we didn't have money. We didn't go on big family trips besides like a car trip to like Alberta or something like that because we lived in BC. And so there's a lot of things. I was very aware of what we had and what we didn't. We had enough, but compared to lots of other people, we really didn't have that much. So money and, and just like the power that it kind of holds was always pretty obvious, even to like, you know, wanting to go to university, that was always something that I wanted to do, but um, I didn't have a college fund. And so my parents were like, well, if you want to go to university, because my dad went to university for, I think, a year or two. Um, but then both of my parents actually went to BCIT, a technical college, and got um, diplomas there. And so they didn't go to, you know, a formal post-secondary. And so, but also, you know, they didn't have the money to save up college funds for all of us. And so they're like, if you want to go to school, you're gonna have to pay for it because we don't have any money for you. And so that's what I did. I'm like, oh, like when, when they told me that, and I think I was like 16, it really actually scared me. So I'm like, oh, wait, oh, I thought that I kind of just assumed they'd take care of it or something. And so I started working at 16, um, you know, every weekend and some nights and stuff to save up money. And I also got some scholarships because I worked my butt off in school so I can get some money from scholarships. And I was able to pay for my whole degree myself. I got, I think, a $5,000 student loan in my, my fifth year of school because I, I did five years. And that was mainly to pay for my final graduation film project because we all had to make a short film. And that was basically how much the film cost. So yeah, money's always been very front of mind, I think, in our family. And because now I pursue this, it's kind of great because we're very open to having these conversations together now too as adults. Oh, that's great. I think it's really interesting you pointed or you used a word about the money growing up about you knew there was enough. And I think that's a really, like research has shown a really good position to be in where there's enough. You know, it's not like there's a scarcity amount, even though there could be 
there are some scary times for sure. But in general, we never went hungry. I was never afraid that my parents couldn't pay their bills. I mean, to be fair, they obviously hid all of that stuff from us. They never really talked when we were kids openly about how much they made or how much they spent. I didn't really know the numbers, but I kind of knew generalities. But there was a time where my dad wasn't laid off. It was, it was, there was a big strike at his workplace and he was basically off work, you know, at the picket line for, for months and months and months. And that was definitely scary. We all were very aware of our financial situation because he was our own. I think at the time, maybe he was, I think my mom was maybe just working part time. And so we didn't have a ton of money. And I remember like just little things like we started going to a different grocery store because it was cheaper. And like, why can't we go to the normal grocery store? It's like, we can't afford that grocery store anymore. And things like that, or, or you know, wasn't allowed to you know, go to the pool with friends because we just didn't have the money and stuff like that. So there is definitely some times and even... There was one time too, and this was also a big reason that almost scared me off pursuing you know, my own business was my dad did freelance on top of his day job. And it was to a point where he was thinking about... And this was right before the dot-com bubble burst. And he was thinking... It was, it was a kind of videography company. And he was thinking of quitting his day job to do this. And we're like, yeah, how exciting. And basically, there was, I think, some other issues with like his business partner. They just weren't really vibing together. But also the dot-com bubble burst and all these tech companies just flopped. And I think that scared the crap out of him. It's like, what was I thinking? I have to provide for my whole family. And so he kind of wrapped up his uh, company. And the message I got was, pursuing entrepreneurship is risky. Don't do it. Luckily, I, I also learned more about that situation and, and learned, well, that there's always risk. You know, he had risk when he was an employee, when he was, you know, had to not work and, and they were all on strike. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I hear a lot of people talk about money advice from their parents that they might not, I guess, align or they believe to be true anymore. And the interesting thing is like to your dad, it makes perfect sense why he would think entrepreneurship is extremely risky. If you look at his lived experience and... It's a good thing to keep in mind for as children, when we look at our parents' advice is that what they gave us was pretty much a truth at that point based on their lived experiences. And it's interesting how you brought that up. Was there a money motto in your household? Like, can't take it with you or saving for a rainy day? I say like, you can't, we can't afford that. (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) That was the thing I heard over and over again. Which, I mean, fair enough, we couldn't afford most things. Like, I remember pleading to my parents as a kid, can we go to Disneyland? And yeah, obviously that never happened. I didn't go to Disneyland until my honeymoon when I was 25, 26, 27, something like that. And so that was probably the thing that we heard often. It wasn't necessarily a motto. It was just something that we all said all the time because that was usually the truth. But again looking back now, that was actually a good thing. I always have that in my head. And instead of making it a negative, like we can't afford that, it's more like, can I afford that? Or should I spend my money in that way? So I feel like because of my upbringing, I'm very cognizant of where my money goes. Like I was never, you know, I see this with a lot of, you know, my financial counseling clients where if they come from a place of scarcity where they never had money as kids, they kind of rebel as adults and spend, spend, spend because they're trying to release something that or experience something that they were never able to do. For me, I'm definitely the opposite where, and this has also been like, you know, work in progress all over these, you know, several years of trying to take the good parts from my childhood, but also I don't want to live in the scarcity mentality or, or just like be one of those people that's obsessed with saving and not looking at the other opportunities for financial success, like earning more money or investing your money and stuff like that. So... There's lots of good things I, I took from my upbringing. A lot of things I think I also had to unlearn because they weren't actually helping me. Thanks for sharing. And it's so interesting just how all of us have this unconscious decision-making tree that's influenced from us as a child. And if we don't take the time to, to dissect what happened, it just unconsciously is operating in the background. We're jumping all around your life here. Now we're going to go back to 30. If you could go back to that Jessica who had this inner critic or still has, but this inner critic saying, why are you going to jump? You know, my dad jumped, tried to jump in the dot-com boom, didn't work. What are you doing? And then you jumped. But if you can go back to that Jessica, what would you say to her today? I'll say your first year of business will be your toughest. So just be prepared because I don't think I fully understood what I was uh, undertaking. But then it gets better and it gets better every year. I was always just definitely had that scarcity mentality that first year of uh, running my own business because I really had no idea what my capacity was or how much money I could make because I only had experience with if I did this part-time, what it could look like. Yeah, just I'm just like, I just want to make enough to pay my bills and to have a little extra. 
And then, you know, I tried different things and my business kind of grew. Then I, I kind of shifted from that scarcity mindset to more of an abundance mindset to be like, what could happen? How big can I make this company? You know, for instance, for the past several years, it's really only in the past couple of years, uh, I did everything myself, every single thing down to editing my podcast. And it's only been the past few years that I kind of let go because I'm like, you can afford to hire some contractors to help you with that. And that's been a big thing that I've had to let go of, of this idea that not only do, you know, oh, something bad could happen, but also it's all on me. It's like, I'm 100% responsible. Even though I am 100% responsible, I don't necessarily need to do every single role in my business. I can kind of give that to people. And that's also been really exciting and empowering because not only do I feel like, wow, I've got a real business, but I'm, you know, kind of helping the economy and that I'm hiring other people and spreading that money around to other people. And then it always kind of comes back around, which is actually kind of an exciting idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many people maintain that scarcity mindset and like, how much can this profitable company grow? How much can I take in? Where, you, you know, hiring contractors, you're helping out other families create their money stories. Exactly. So 2011, did you start your blog? Yeah, December 2011. I think that's super interesting. I have no idea how many blogs were around then. Not a ton. Not At a the ton. time though, I thought yeah. there were, but I think it's actually in the personal finance Canadian space, I feel like, I don't know, 20, like that's how many I knew of. I'm sure there were more, but in my kind of view of the people I connected to and read blogs of and stuff, 20, possibly 30, a lot of them well, most of them do not exist anymore, obviously, because it's been a while, but some people have actually been around for just as long, which is actually pretty cool. And then lots of people popped up after I started my blog that are you know, still pursuing this and, and doing their own thing, which is really cool. So it's been interesting to see the evolution of personal finance content creation, because uh, back in the day, it was just called blogging. And now there's so many different ways where you can create this information and content and education, which is actually really cool to see. Yeah. And I think it's, we talked about, again, that narrative, that script that you stepped outside or your word was deviate. As we look at income pay scales in Canada, US, wherever, and there's so much inequality between male and female. What does it mean to you to be a woman stepping out of that narrative into a space male dominated in 2011, where there's not too many blogs and then fast forward to 2015, your podcast. What does it mean to you to think that there are other females who look up to you now and being like, wow, look what Jessica has been able to do. Maybe I can do something like that. Makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God, if anyone's looking up to me, that means I'm old. <laughs> I'm super flattered when anyone says something like that or, you know, there's, you know, new content creators coming up and, and saying, you know, things like that or DMing me. I'm like, wow, that's for me, like, that's still kind of crazy. I'm like, oh, that's weird. I'm just like Jessica hanging out, but okay. But yeah, like, I mean, when I started, there weren't that many blogs and the bigger blogs that, you know, got lots of traffic and that were more well-known were by men. Um, and for the women who did have blogs and I, I love their blogs, that's kind of what inspired me to start my own. It was very interesting to see what kind of content both genders were putting out there. Women typically stuck with budgeting, cash flow, and debt. And the men were pretty much talking about, you know, financial independence and, and investing. And so for, for me as a woman... That's why I really stuck in that kind of lane for a while. Even just me personally, I never really even wanted to learn about investing because I thought I wasn't included in that. I wasn't invited to that party. And then as I really, it's, it really did kind of uh, change things once I started my podcast and had to interview people from all areas. I'm like, I should not be afraid to learn this. And if I feel like this, other people probably feel like this. And I should really, again, push myself, be uncomfortable and learn something that I don't feel like I have the right to learn. I knew nothing, really, really nothing about investing. I had already kind of a foundation with budgeting and, uh, and other kind of elements of financial planning from seeing what my mom did, but they never talked about investing. All I knew was, was RSPs and I, I didn't know what that was. And I thought that was an investment. So for me, it was, it's been a big thing I've wanted to really focus my energy and time with is educating you know everyone, but also especially women about investing and, and wealth generation. Because I think for most of us, we just never found someone who had our, you know, the same kind of voice or can speak our kind of language. And when you do go on kind of platforms like Reddit, and there's like, you know, all these investing forums, it is intimidating. People are nasty and mean. And that is for someone like me, who's just starting out, I'm like, I don't want to ask a question because people are just going to call me stupid. So for me, it's been definitely something interesting to kind of see that shift and kind of lots of the, the stuff that I talk about. But what's also exciting is younger women, and I'm talking about like, you know, people in their 20s and stuff like that, they're kind of not, I think, as afraid to talk about that stuff, which I guess is a really good thing to see. There's that change, you know, there's not that big divide that existed when I started blogging. There's there's more voices and 
people are more fluid, which is really exciting. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about that change. It takes people like yourselves way long ago to step out and uh, pave the way. So if we go to your podcast, I looked last night, 284. Four. We four. just, yeah, just okay. put out a new one this, okay. this day. So 284 episodes. Nice. Well done. Like very, very well done. And over those 284 conversations, I want to go to the relationship people have with money, like the overall sentiment you have learned through 284 conversations. But I want to use a picture. We all heard this uh, picture tells a thousand words. And if you actually look in the, the science or the research of it, pictures do like evoke memories and they, they speak to us. And they grab our attention. If you had to pick a picture that kind of holistically, and I know this is hard to do because you've had 284 conversations of individuals, but if you picked one picture that represented the overall, I guess, sentiment you feel people have, the relationship of money, what would it be? That's a good question. One, which is kind of like the image that I crafted when I was developing my online investing course. I'm like, well, how can I kind of represent their journey you'll take? And and also like, what was the journey I took to go from having no idea about investing to feeling confident enough to teach others about it? It really is kind of like that, you know, Mount Everest, that mountain where you're at the base camp and you're like, this is, there's no way I can go up that mountain. There's no way I don't have the tools. I don't have the experience. Like, but there are some helpers, there are some guides. So maybe I'll give it a go. And just like, I mean, I, and this is funny that I'm saying this because I absolutely hate hiking. I blame my asthma personally, but I'm just not a good hiker. But it is this idea of like, it just seems impossible at the beginning, but then you just like, you know, put one foot in front of the other. And then by the time you know it, you can look back and you're halfway, you know, up that mountain. And then eventually you get to a top. The real thing is there's no real top to like educating yourself about any one topic, but you're always pursuing that, you know, peak of the mountain. So that's kind of, I feel like the sentiment that money represents to me, like the journey of me really. And, you know, back when I was in film school, I was pretty good with my money because I mean, I had to be, I, you know, this is my money. I have to, you know, use it wisely, but I didn't know so much. I didn't know the difference between a checking and a savings account because I only ever had a savings account. So I didn't understand. So why do I need this other bank account? What's a check? I don't know. Why. You know, like I remember having to Google and sometimes I still have to Google how to write a check because I never do it. So for me, that was my journey. And just talking to so many people over all these years, like on my podcast as a guest, or, you know, I talk to listeners and, and, and people in my audience all the time. That's kind of, I think this, that what it feels like to them. Like a lot of them come to me when they're like, I've listened to your show or follow you, you know, for a while. And I want to like, you know, actually put some of the stuff that you're teaching into action. What do I do? And so that is kind of like when you're like, I want to take a hike, I want to go up that mountain, but what do I need? What should I pack in my pack? And how long that will this take? And I don't know what to do. Can you be my guide up that mountain? So that's, I think the visualization I have is a, a big Mount Everest mountain. I think that's a great image. And I think many people relate. And I really like your idea of, you know, once you start taking that step, or you know what, you're halfway up there. Just speaking about a, a mountain, you had your own Mount Everest where, like you said, you started that blog. There was men blogging about investing, females blogging about budgeting. Now you've climbed a mountain where you're teaching people about investing. What does it mean to you that you can actually teach people about investing right now? It's the best feeling because also, you know, a big thing that I want to teach others is if I can learn this, you can too. Like, I don't really like the idea of like, if I can do this, you can too, because maybe not. But when it comes to like learning stuff, it's like this information is out there. I learned, I was self-taught for, you know, most of it. And then it's only been the past, you know, four years, I have been taking some traditional education and, and certifications and stuff like that. But anyone can learn this stuff. And it's never been easier. It's so much easier to find this information now than in 2011. Let me tell you, it was not easy to Google things back then. There was a handful of books and there's so many more great books from different authors and not just, you know, men, women, but also people of color. So people are sharing more of their experiences and their backgrounds, which is just making it, you know, open up the conversation even more. So there's never been a better time to learn this topic, which is such an exciting thing. And for me, I feel like it's not just my role to kind of relay or translate this information. It's to get people excited about it, as excited as I was when I first kind of picked up, you know, the typical, the wealthy barber, the first book yeah. I read, you know, in personal finance. And you're like, wow, this is really interesting. I've never thought about money in this context. And I got so excited not just about like, oh, I can learn more about personal finance, but the uh, excitement really stemmed from, I think I can really have a different life than what I think it'll be. I always kind of thought I'd be broke or just like scraping by and always having that kind of motto of I can't afford it. 
And I'm like, maybe if I actually take some of these, you know, tips and pieces of advice, I can actually have a different life than what I kind of see for myself. And yeah, that's happened. I have a much better life than I thought I'd have at this age. And, and it's just goes kind of goes to show that not only can everyone learn this, but you can apply it. It does take time. You have to be very patient and you have to be consistent, but you will be able to eventually see, Oh, this stuff does work. Cause it's very basic stuff. Like it's not a secret. Like I, you know, talking to people all the time and it's like, there's no real secrets in personal finance. And if someone says that they do have a secret, you should maybe run away. Cause there's, they're going to sell you something or scam you out of some money or something like that. But it's all just you know, very kind of easy stuff to apply, which I think should actually give you some comfort that it's not like some impossible thing to overcome. It's actually like once you kind of slowly kind of add some of these things into your life, like create a budget and live within your means and all that kind of stuff, you'll slowly see these really uh, big impactful changes that will, again, you'll, you'll see the big impact, you know, in a few years. Like for me, again, I've been doing this for almost a decade. It is wild to see how much change I've seen in my like personal life, also financial life, um, just by applying these basic things. You mentioned about age and it reminded me, I saw something on uh, LinkedIn that you posted that you just had a birthday. I did. I turned 35. I'm not afraid to say it. 35. <laughs> <laughs> I recently yeah. turned 36, so I, I okay. understand that. <laughs> but I recently saw, maybe it was because I was feeling the same way about turning 36, but uh, I, I saw an article that showed a survey that when they did reflective learning on their, their lives, I think everyone was 60 who did the survey. They picked 36 as the most enjoyable year of their life. Oh, good. So I have something to look forward yeah, to. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So next year you have something really to look forward to. When you look at this, you because you said for decades, so you're kind of parceling this last 10 years. When you look at your next 10 years, that is on the cusp of the best years of your life, according to this research, what do you hope to learn about your relationship with money? What do you hope to learn about your business and yourself? Oh, that's a good question. I think I, in this past decade... I've achieved so much that I never thought I would be able to that, you know, my parents weren't even able to at that age. And again, different lives. They had three kids. Me and my husband don't have any kids. So that makes a big change, but we're able to live in the city, like a Toronto, like my parents could never afford to live in Vancouver. They had to move out once they had kids and we're able to travel and have more flexibility and, and just, you know, kind of do whatever we kind of want, you know, within boundaries, of course. And that's been so cool because yeah, throughout my whole 20s, it felt like very restrictive. I had, you know, very strict budget because, you know, trying to like save up that emergency fund, start investing all these things. It felt like, oh, this is kind of a grind. And then once you kind of, you know, I think in the past few years, like 33, 34, definitely, I finally started to feel like a bit more relaxed and more comfortable financially and like, oh, I think we'll definitely have enough for retirement. Um, maybe we can even retire a bit way earlier than expected. Like things like that is so exciting. And so for the next decade, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say, you know, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I try actually not to think even beyond what's going to happen next year. I usually honestly am like, what do I want to do this year? That's kind of how my mind works. Because uh, I like to, again, be open to possibilities and opportunities. So I feel like if I think too far into the future, which is what I used to do all the time, you kind of close the door and certain things. You're like, well, that's not part of my plan. So I always like to stay open. But in general, we definitely like to maybe move out of the city. I'd love to have, you know, some property. I just want some land. I think I'm just like very sick of being in our house during this pandemic or our townhouse. And I'm like, I can't wait to get out of the city, um, travel more, be able to actually work in different places, um, you know, throughout the world. That's always been the big dream. Cause you know, my husband's self-employed too, that, you know, has a, a different job where he does need some like, you know, music equipment and stuff like that. But you know, that's kind of always been a big dream of ours. It's like traveling the world, but still like working and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, kind of just, again, being open to, to whatever happens, but continuing to, to grow my business and just find new ways to attract people to this. It may seem like a boring kind of topic, but it's actually really exciting and life-changing. Yeah. You getting out of the city, hey? I'm just sick of the city. Yeah. I'm like, I need a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like there's never been a worse place to live is like right downtown. We're not even right, right downtown, but still like in the city during a pandemic. Yeah. Not super fun. I would love to see some rolling fields. <laughs> yeah. Well, come to Alberta. We got a lot. I know it's beautiful there. So yeah, I'd love to. So I had a few other things that I want to go to, but I'm looking at the time. I want to be respectful of our time. And I just want to make an observation is that what I really find interesting about your, your journey is that You've really, really done the research on the blogging, the podcast, wonderful guests, and you've also dedicated to further education. And 
we were just chatting before we recorded where you have your the accredited financial counselor certification. You're doing your Canadian security, working towards your CFP. I think it's just phenomenal. But hearing your story, I can understand why you're doing all that. It just kind of, right? Like, like some people are like, oh, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, don't worry. I have no plans to ever become like a portfolio manager or a full-time financial planner. That's not something I, I personally want to do. But I love learning about this stuff. And I think because for so many years, I've just been self-taught, you know, reading books by, you know, some great people and blogs and listening to podcasts and, and videos and all that stuff. I wanted to know kind of the other side of it. I'm like, what do the internal people learn? <laughs> what do those financial advisors learn? What do people that become CFPs know? Because I want to know what they know so I can see both sides of it. It was kind of natural. And so I did start first with kind of, I'd say like an introductory kind of program, the Accredited Financial Counselor Canada program. It's not super well-known, but it's a great program. I got it done in a year. It's more well-known in the US. And that's kind of how I got to know it. There's some uh, people I knew in the US who had it. And that was great. I'm like, this is great. I absolutely love doing kind of the, the textbook and the exams and all that stuff. But then after I'm like, you know what? I want to know more. And so I, I did the Canadian securities course last fall. And that was the most stressful thing I've ever done because I stupidly gave myself a very tight timeline. I, I studied and took both exams within two and a half months. Wouldn't recommend that, but I did it somehow and passed. And then after that, I finished I'm like, oh, I'm not done. I thought maybe, oh, may that's all I need to do. I'm like, no, no, no. We're just keep on going. And yeah, I'm just a nerd. And I love to study, I guess. Oh, good. It keeps the mind fresh. It does. It gives you a different perspective on things that you already know, especially. And it's also interesting to come at it, not from like a place of, oh, I don't know any of this stuff. It's like, I already have a foundation, but I, you still have to learn things in a different way. So it's, it's, it's been interesting. This is my last question. I'm going to challenge you because I totally appreciate the looking only a year in advance and being curious to embrace whatever happens, but we're going all the way to 95 years old. <laughs> Let's yeah. pretend you're all the way to 95, really stretching you. Perhaps you're outside of Toronto. It doesn't matter where you are. Oh my gosh. I hope I'm not 95 and live in Toronto. Like that cannot happen. I'm going to be living on Vancouver Island or something. Okay. So you're on Vancouver Island, maybe Salt Spring Island on there. It doesn't matter where on a beautiful porch, looking back at your life. And I know you like memoirs and you're tasked to write a memoir about specific part of it is what you want to impart on the next generation of what you've learned about having a happy relationship with money. What would be a central theme you would have in that book? Oh, that's a great question. Well, one thing that I've encountered over and over, and this is, I'd say, predominantly with women is there is this lack of financial confidence, confidence in themselves that they can learn how to manage their money or, or learn kind of maybe things that they thought were complex, like investing. That is something that we we still need to work through. But also there's this, you know, thing that I hear often is I'm bad with money. I've never been good with money. I'm not good with money. My parents are bad with money, which I already know is a book, but I'm not, so I'm not going to write that book. But that is such a, a, a thing that I hear over and over again is we need to get rid of this idea that managing your money has anything to do with talent. Some people are naturally good, but I think it's, it's not like they were born with it. It's like they learned that stuff, most likely gleaning it from their parents or other family members or friends or something like that. Like how I feel like I'm pretty good with money and always happen. It's because I got that. I saw what my mom did and it worked. She was able to, to keep us afloat no matter what situation. And so I just took that into my own adult life. So, you know, getting rid of this idea that your past or where you started will indicate where you will be in the future. You can change your money story and your path and you can learn this stuff. And just because you feel bad with money, that doesn't mean you are a bad person or you are bad with money. It just means you're making choices based off the information you currently have and you just don't have all the right information or enough tools in your toolbox. Wow. I think you take a lot of compassion towards that view on the past of your money and then really good layout for editing that story going forward. I look forward to reading the book. I'll be, I'll be 96, so I should still be around. Let's hope I like write a book before I'm 95 because I feel like I'll write it and then I'll like, well, that's it. I die or something like that. But no, the, one of the best things I feel like I've learned that I, it's always in my mind that I learned when I, I did the Accredited Financial Counselor Canada program was they talked a lot about like the counseling aspect and compassion and empathy, which I think is so important. I see more conversations about that in the personal finance community now, which is so overdue. When you're working with a client, just remember, they're actually doing the best they can with the information and tools they have. So most people aren't just jerks and just like, oh, I don't care what I'm doing with my money. They think they're making the right choices for them. They just don't have 
all of the tools. And so our jobs as, you know, educators or instructors or counselors or financial planners is to help them get those tools or build those tools for themselves. But at the end of the day, everyone's actually doing the best that they can right now. And so we need to be compassionate about that. I really, really love that last statement. I mean, I feel like there's too many judgments that planners, other people in the financial industry put on people who already feel guilty and shameful for their money, despite being in a system that's dysfunctional for them. Exactly. There's so many feelings around money already. And a lot of them are negative. I mean, we haven't even talked about this. But you know, when I first started out, a lot of the the content that I was reading or watching or whatever, it was quite negative centric, you know, lots of those big kind of voices were like, don't spend debt is bad, like is very negative, like you are doing something wrong. And you need me to help you fix it. And that just makes you feel like crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like it also <laughs> does not help your relationship with making you feel good about money. And it is an exciting, positive thing in your life. And so I definitely see a, a shift in tone, which I think is so important, but definitely like the empathy aspect. I mean, especially for planners, you know, especially if you've been doing that job for a long time, you need to really step back and remember, this isn't about you. And it's not about you just like pushing something onto that person. You need to listen and really remember, you know, what was it like maybe if you were in their shoes? I think that's a big thing that I do every day is like remembering where people come from and where they're starting from. Cause I also started at that level. Wow. Very, very insightful. I couldn't agree any, any more. So why don't you tell people where they can find a very compassionate and empathetic online investing course where they can find more of your content, your podcast and everything else. I do have all the links I'll include, but please feel free to uh, share. So everything I've got is on my website, jessicamorehouse.com. Uh, I, of course, also have a, a podcast very specific to... Hey, well, I mean, it's not really specific. It's about all things money. It's called the More Money Podcast. It's all about how to... Gosh, what, I made the tagline recently and I'm like, that's eh, pretty good. And then I forget it all the time. But I think it's like earn more, save more, do more with your money. It's all about kind of that, that abundance mindset. How can we kind of get to that next level no matter where you're staying? I also have an investing course that I launched uh, in February of 2021 called A Wealth Building Blueprint for Canadians. And it's a specific course I wanted to make because a lot of people, you know, listen to my show. And they're like, how do I actually do this stuff though? You talk a lot about, you know, specifically passive investing and like having an ETF portfolio and all that kind of stuff. How does that actually work? And so I built a course to really walk you through if you want to be a DIY investor or use a robo advisor and you just want to know what are the fundamentals of investing to all the way to how to place your first trade and rebalance your portfolio? How do you do that? So I built a course uh, that goes through all of that. So you can find that on my uh, website as well. Wonderful. I will link to all your links. And I really appreciate you taking your time to share your wisdom and knowledge with our audience. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated Effort podcast. And thank you for Jessica for sharing her story, her money story with us. Perhaps we might start thinking more about our stories, our money stories, and even our own money memoirs. Until next time, have a great week.